saved, beloved, by his mercies and grace. There is only reasons to be worshipful this morning, despite circumstances, how it may or may not look. Jesus is still reigning on high. Do not forget that and repent of any other spirit you may have within you now. So, with that being said, it is Reformation Sunday. And it's No, October 31st is not Halloween, is it? That's for the pagans. October 31st is Reformation Day, and it's the time that we as Protestants should get pretty jazzed up. Um, you know, as perhaps Reformed folk, it's hard for us to get jazzed up about many things, but Reformation Sunday, that should be the day that we are jazzed up, and I hope that you um, have came ready to worship. Um, it's, it's interesting to see Reformation Sunday, to see how it, the Reformation as a whole, the movement, how it started. Um, uh, you know, and this might be somewhat inaccurate. Some people argue the Reformation started at different times and different reasons. But largely, we, we consider down in Switzerland, the Reformation started with Zwingli eating meat uh, during the Lent period or during the period that the Catholic Church said, you shall not eat meat. Zwingli and his, and his boys were eating meat in the house, and that's really the start of the Reformation time in, in Switzerland. Or we think of in Germany where the Reformation started with Luther, and he was simply speaking against indulgences, thinking there's just something not right about this. And that's where the Reformation kind of started from there. But we see that the Reformation culminated somewhere much deeper than that. Indulgences is a great error. I'm not mean to say that it's something that we should kind of gloss over, but it doesn't get to the heart of the issue. Whether or not we eat meat, right, and whether or not we're allowed to do that, that's uh, an issue to discuss, but it doesn't get to the heart of the matter. The Reformation culminated to the heart of the matter in this confession that we hold, all hold here, and that confession is found in the five solas. That is the sola gratia, sola fide, solus Christus, soli deo gloria, and sola scriptura. And the reason why it culminated here is because this is the essence of the gospel. It's the essence of your Christian religion. It's the essence of your entrance into unity and, and, and in the blessed state of conformity with Jesus. And it is the essence of you living in the covenant of grace. You see, it had to culminate somewhere deeper than simply these outlying issues. Instead, it culminated in the centrality of your relationship with the Father and the centrality of your relationship with the Father even today. And so that's why it's very good for us on certain occasions like this to relook at this confession of the five solas. It's not just a confession that we go and we scream out of our windows uh, driving in the car on Reformation Sunday yelling at at papists, at, at Catholics. No, it's much more than simply just something that we yell at the Catholics about. It is a confession that gets to the heart of your relationship with the Lord. So that's why it's worthy for us to look at. It's worthy for us to celebrate. It's worthy for us to understand because not only is it a confession that grew out of this disagreement with the Catholic religion, but it also it points to your entrance and your life in the covenant of grace. So we should look at it, shouldn't we? And I think we see it in many ways here in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2 to 11. And that's what we'll be at this morning. Follow along with me as I read, please. Philippians 3, chapter, or Philippians chapter 3, verse 2. This is the word of the Lord. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision 
who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count all of them as rubbish, as garbage, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but rather what comes through faith in Jesus, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. O oh God in heaven, I am a very weak man. And I, my weakness is displayed in my own heart when I am tasked to go before the people of God and proclaim your word. I, I'm thankful that you always see fit for me to bemoan and see and understand just how weak I am to do such a task. But I ask, Lord, that in my weakness I would look to Jesus. I ask that I would see the sufficiency is found not in me but in him. And, oh, God in heaven, let this not just be something that I do as a, as a preacher as someone who is speaking the word, as someone who is expounding the text, but rather also let the listeners do the same thing. I pray that right now in this moment they are understanding, they're seeing, oh, they are weak. They don't have ears to hear of their own ability, and they are far too often distracted on different things, on circumstances, on things that are letting them down. Oh, God in heaven, I pray that they would see their weakness. They wouldn't try to look away from it or act like it's not there, but they would rather see it, highlight it, so that Jesus Christ can take care of them. He, you, love humility. So I pray that all of us here right now in this hour, in this, in this, in this hour of worship, we would come together with humble hearts, in humility, in weakness, knowing and having faith that Jesus Christ takes our weakness and he makes it our strength by his strength. Oh, Lord, this is the worship that you love. So I thank you for all the circumstances that are in our lives right now that are showcasing our weakness. I praise you for that, Lord, and I pray that the people before me would praise you for that as well as they utilize that to lean upon the strong name of their Savior, Jesus Christ. May he be glorified now and forever, forever into eternity, as he rightly deserves. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We see here, and, and I want you to keep in your mind the, the, the solace of the Reformation. I, I want you to keep in your mind as, as we're looking at this. We see here at the beginning of this passage, we see a warning by Paul for false worship or false religion. Um, he, he uses language that he doesn't mince words at all. He says in verse 2, look out for the dogs. Look out for the dogs. And, and really what he's highlighting with dogs there is, he, is he's saying an unclean thing. 
that is to be separated from the covenant community of God. He's using Old Testament language, and we even think of the, uh, the book of Revelation, in which the book of Revelation, John at the end says, the dogs won't be allowed in to the church of God. And he's using that language of unclean things that were to be separated. But of course, he's not talking about literal dogs that were unclean in the Mosaic covenant economy and dispensation of, of God there, but rather he's using it in a way that's saying that these false worshipers, these false religionists, they are unclean, not fit to be in the covenant community. They are dogs to be left out. It's really amazing to see the warnings of Paul in the Bible of how much more concerned he is with false worship or false religionists than he is with the pagan outside of Christianity altogether. We, you think of Ephesians when he's, or in Acts when he's talking to the Ephesian elders, what does he warn them about? I know that some of you are going to turn to wolves, he says. Paul is always very concerned, more concerned about paganism or, or, or about the unbelievers. He's concerned about those who are false professors, those who are false religionists or whatever word I want to say here. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out, he says, for the evildoers. They are unclean because they are evildoers. And they are evildoers. And this is something that you need to highlight and note because he says, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Mutilate. Now, what does he mean by that, mutilating the flesh? You think of mutilation, it's just destroying, right? And the flesh here, he's referring to circumcision, as he'll get to in the next verse. The, 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 he says, we are the proper religionists. We are the proper Christians. We are the proper circumcision. But here in verse 2, he says, they are simply mutilating the flesh. What does he mean by that? Well, these are the people who they have circumcision as an understanding of how they enter into the new covenant people of God, okay? They look at the entrance into the new covenant, the entrance into the church of Christ, the entrance into the covenant of grace as an act of circumcision. That will enter them into this blessed state, this circumcision. And here Paul says, no, it's nothing but the mutilation of their flesh. Now, what's with the confusion? Uh, notice that they're using terminology, the, these false religionists, they're using terminology that's by and large biblical. Circumcision was a blessed thing. Circumcision was demanded by God. You look in scriptures, it's not hard to see God promoting circumcision and commanded it to be an act of worship. In fact, it was commanded to be something done in order to enter into the Mosaic Covenant. And so you can see that these people aren't just grabbing things out of nowhere like unbelievers would, but instead they're grabbing hold of Scripture and they're, and they're using circumcision as a way to enter into the new covenant community. And Paul says that that is mutilation instead. You see, circumcision at the time and this old covenant dispensation, it was to enter into a covenant. But it wasn't the new covenant, it was the Mosaic covenant. And we see that it was meant to, the, the, the beauties or the benefit of being brought into the Mosaic Covenant, being brought into Israel by circumcision as a baby, is that you would be exposed to the law of God. This is a benefit to be exposed to the law of God. It is a benefit to expose people to the law of God because it was supposed to expose your need for the fulfillment of circumcision, which was spiritual circumcision. 
The, the beauty of entering into the Mosaic Covenant by your physical circumcision was that you would be exposed to the law of God in the Mosaic Covenant and realize I am in need of a greater circumcision. I am in need of forgiveness. But was it, all, was it ever meant to be used to enter into the New Covenant? And Paul, with a clear answer, says No. He says, it is rather just simply, now that the new covenant has came, it is simply just mutilating your flesh. It's very important. You know, I don't think any of us are struggling with whether or not we need to be circumcised in order to enter into the new covenant. But I do think that many people in Christianity can suffer with certain Christianese stuff, certain religious items, that they think this will bring me into the new covenant of grace. And I can think of my own experience, my own experience of, of, and I probably have mentioned this before behind the pulpit because I tend to, I hope I don't just look like I'm just hated on the sinner's prayer so much, but I think of my own experience as with the sinner's prayer. All religious stuff, right? You're, you're, you're called in the sinner's prayer to come forward to the altar that has rig, uh, Christianity aspect to it and say, I'm a sinner. I need Jesus, right? And all these things are associated with it. But then there's this teaching behind it, that, and this will get you into the new covenant community, that this will bring you into the new covenant, and you will be saved because you said this prayer, and so I think in my own experience that there is this kind of this religious talk that this will definitely enter into the new covenant of grace. And there are many issues, errors, if you think about it, if you just spend time thinking about it, there are many things that are posited as this will get you into the new covenant community. This will get you into the new, new covenant of grace. This will get you in there if you do this thing. In fact, some of you may even have been duped yourself. Or if there are some of you who are not saved, you might be duped into that system yourself. I am in the New Covenant community because I have done this. And I remember as in this state of unregeneracy, in this state of being not saved, I remember that, that what I rested my assurance of salvation on was not Jesus, but I had said the sinner's prayer at one point. I looked for it for my confidence that I was in the covenant of grace. And you see here Paul is saying in verse 2, look out for those who would do an act, a physical act of circumcision to think that they can then enter into the covenant of grace by that physical act. And he says in verse 2, they are simply not circumcising, but they are mutilating, mutilating their flesh. In verse 3, he contrasts that heavy with true religion, though. In verse 3, he contrasts that heavily with true religion, true entrance, when he says, for we, if you look in your Bibles, for we are the circumcision. They are the mutilators of the flesh, but he says, but we, that is those who are actually in the new covenant community, he says, we are the circumcision. Now, of course, he doesn't mean the physical act, but he means the fulfillment in which we see who worship by the Spirit of God. See, worship by the Spirit of God is what physical circumcision always pointed to. It always pointed to the need that we would be circumcised by the Holy Spirit, that the sins of our heart would be cut away, and we would have the law written on it in its stead. He says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God. You remember Ezekiel. Turn there if you don't mind. Ezekiel 36 that, that, um, that text oftentimes we go to for this teaching. Look at Ezekiel 36. This has always been the promise. Ezekiel 36, 25. 
prophet writes, God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your unclean, all, all your unclean, um, um, oh goodness, I can't see you, from all your uncleanness, cleannesses, uncleanness. I can't talk, I can't, it's funny, you, you read it in your mind, you think, oh, that sounds good, and then all of a sudden you can't read it when it's on the page. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit, and I'll put uh, and I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I'll give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in all my statutes, and be careful to obey my rules. And so you see there, there's that promise that the physical circumcision was to point to the fact that they needed this spiritual circumcision right here. In fact, in that realm of, of being in Israel, they were to be overwhelmed by all the laws that they were to keep, and they would be overwhelmed to the degree that they say, oh God, God, I need a divine miracle. I need a spiritual circumcision. And of course, we see in Jeremiah 31 that the promise of the new covenant also, you remember in Jeremiah 31, 34, and 35, that, that all these people in covenant community will know him already. And so this is the promise. This is the promise of the new covenant that's coming that Paul's referring to here, is that the covenant community of God would all know God by this spiritual circumcision. No longer like in the state of Israel where there was people in Israel, some had this spiritual circumcision, but some didn't. Now the greater promise is that everyone in the covenant community, everyone in the new covenant of grace would receive this spiritual circumcision. And this is the fulfillment of promise. And this is what Paul's saying here. For we are the circumcision who worship by the spirit of God. And we see that the end result, what this produces, you see, is that finishing up verse 3, he says, And glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. The reason why it's required that for us to enter into the covenant of grace is for us to have a, a miraculous process happen in our heart where the Spirit works in regeneration. It's because it is to put our confidence not in ourselves, not in any kind of physical act we can do, but put our confidence in Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has done the work. He is the arm, the power of the work that the Spirit produces in the elect. You see, Jesus Christ is the one who came, and he was lawful perfectly, as we talk about later. And he kept the law perfectly, and he died on the cross, despite the fact that he was perfectly righteous, because he was taken on your sins. And so it's that work, the resurrection work of Jesus, that the Spirit produces in your heart that creates, that creates proper obedience to him. You see, this is why Paul attaches very quickly the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. Because it's that work of the Spirit is bringing the work of Jesus to your heart. So we got to understand that circumcision, physical circumcision, to rely upon that when the new covenant promises have came, to rely upon that when it has came in Jesus Christ is nothing but mutilation. It's nothing but false worship. It's nothing but false religion. No, he says, we have the true. We are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And so the focus of your life here in reality of this, of this truth, this gospel truth, the focus of your life goes to Christ who made the promise of the Spirit, regeneration, possible in your life. 
And so I'll never forget my security of salvation went from what I did at the altar in the sinner's prayer to what Jesus did at Calvary. And this is what solus Christus, this is what the Reformation, the, the, the alone of Christ, the alone of grace, the alone of faith does, is it puts our hearts and minds alone on Jesus instead of putting it on other things to do with the flesh. The answer to confidence in the flesh, Paul says here, is solus Christus, which leads us to soli deo gloria. That is, we glory in Christ alone. You see, if that's not the way we're entering into the covenant of grace, it is no entrance at all, but it is a, it is a, a, a deception. It is a lie. It is something that is deceiving us. And that is much more dangerous. False religion, a false security, a false I am all right with God because I did that, this, or the other is much more dangerous than simply the unbeliever. We got to understand that entrance into the new covenant grace is one done by a miraculous power of regeneration by the work of Jesus. And it's interesting in verse four, he goes on, Paul says, it's, it's not as though Paul had no fleshly confidence to begin with. Like, like Paul had no reason to boast in the flesh, so therefore he had a theology that hated any works of the flesh, and he just created a theology where all you gotta do is boast in Jesus Christ. It's not like Paul had no reason to boast in the flesh. No, Paul had every reason to boast in the flesh, and that's what he says in verse four. He says, though I myself, I have reason for confidence in the flesh for salvation. Um, he says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So it's not like as if Paul had no reason. He had every reason to boast, but he says true religion, true salvation comes not from this boasting. Look at what he says about his ability or his reasons to boast in the flesh. He says in verse 5, he says he was circumcised on the eighth day. He says circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, I was a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. So here we have all these things, right, that Paul's detailing that, again, in the Bible, we can find things that were good from God. Just like circumcision was a good thing instituted by God for a time that was proper for worship. Here, Paul details, I had every reason to, to, to have confidence. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel. At that time, that was something to be valued. That was something that God had determined to be, was proper to be the people of God, to be circumcised in the eighth day, to be the people of Israel. He says, I was the tribe of Benjamin. What's the point in there? Well, the fact is, is that Paul was a true Israelite. He knew exactly where his lineage came from. We see in the Old Testament, lineage, the New Testament, lineage is important, isn't it? And Paul knew exactly where his lineage came from. He wasn't just vaguely saying, I was somewhere, one of the tribes of Israel. He says, I am from the tribe of Benjamin. Paul knew exactly where he came forth from. He even says a Hebrew of Hebrews. Most likely what he's saying there is, I come from two Hebrew, Hebrew parents. Uh, he, he, he doesn't come from Hellenists. He doesn't come from the fake Hebrews. He doesn't come from like the half Greeks. No, he came from Hebrews of Hebrews. He came from two devoted Hebrews themselves. And he says, as to the law, he wasn't a Sadducee. He wasn't a liberal. He was a Pharisee. The Pharisees was the tradition that took the law most important. 
It's not like the Pharisees threw away the law thinking it was unimportant. No, the Pharisees upheld the law as something that must be understood, memorized, and done. So he says, I have every reason to be confident in the flesh. I was a Pharisee. I took the law seriously. I applied the law. I did the law. And he says, I was zealous for the law. He says, my zeal was shown in the fact that I persecuted the church. And if the church, if this sect called the Nazarenes was false, guess what should have been done to the Nazarenes? They should have been persecuted according to Old Testament law. You are not to allow such heresy to happen in Israel and just, you know, wink at it. No, if, if the Nazarene sect, if Jesus was a false prophet, then the zealousness of Paul in the law should have encouraged him to persecute that false law or that false religion. Of course, we know as Christians it wasn't false. And he finds that out later. But nevertheless, Paul is pointing to the fact that I was zealous for this law. It's not only that I knew it, that I applied it, but I was zealous for it. And it's seen in the fact that I was persecuting what I saw as harmful to the law. It says, I was zealous, a persecutor of the church. And he says, as to righteousness under the law, I was absolutely blameless. People looked at him and they clapped for him. Paul was expecting that when he died, God would just... Good job. Wow. Amazing. That's what he's expecting as he entered in uh, to be approaching God, that God would be so amazed by his righteousness under the law that he would be clapped into the heavenly realms. But you see, something very dramatic happened to Paul. Um, Before I get there, look at the fact that it was all very religious stuff, things in a certain sense prized in the Bible, if you see that. But the law was never meant to be the ladder up to heaven. We know we've all heard that before. But you see, Paul understood the law as something as a ladder to reach heaven, right? I was a righteous person. I did the law. I, was, I stood up and I, and I was able to do it to where I was welcomed into the heavenlies because of it. You see, the wrong-headed understanding of the law was that it was a ladder meant to bring us up to the heavenly realm. If you look at Galatians, though, we see that Paul realizes that it's much different, that that's not the actual use, a proper use of the law. Look at Galatians chapter 3, 21. Paul says in Galatians 3, 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if it For if a law had been given that could give life, now when you see life, you got to be able to define what life is, right? Don't be like a Christian that gets so used to a word that you just kind of just mindlessly, life means togetherness with God, right? I mean, there's different ways you could define it. But togetherness with God, righteousness, being right before God, being with God, togetherness with, with God is what life means. He says, if that could have given life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus might be given to those who believe. Now, before faith came, before the new covenant came, before Jesus was revealed fully, we were held captive under the law in prison until the coming faith would be revealed. And so, he says in verse 24, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. What's the point being said here is that the law was not meant to be a ladder to reach up into life with God. It's never meant to do that. 
Um, but yet, in, in falsehood, in false religiousness, Paul took it as that, that I was religious, I was zealous, I was righteous before God. I climbed that ladder using the law. No, the law was not meant to be a ladder up to heaven, but rather the law was, to, was what Jesus used to climb down to us. You look at Galatians 4, one chapter over, 4 through 6, but... When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law. Now that needs to make your mind just amazed. That the son of God, true God, true God, true man, true man, put the law upon himself. He came so humbly that he, he was under the law. His own law. He put himself under. This is our God, this is Jesus Christ. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth the Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into your heart, crying, Abba, Father. So you got to understand that the law was used for the Son of God to come down to us, not for us to use to go up to him. It is impossible for the sons of Adam, me and you, without Christ, to use the law in that way. And any way we try to use that law to enter into the life, the righteousness, the life, the heavenly realm with God is only mutilation of the flesh. You see, but something happened to Paul. A miraculous thing happened to Paul on the Damascus Road. He was using the law unlawfully. He was in the, using the law in this way. But when Paul saw Jesus on the Damascus road, he saw a righteous. And by righteous, that's true righteous. Not a false righteousness that he thought he had by the law. But this is, he saw a righteous God-man in the heavenlies. To such a degree that anything he thought he had, he had to throw away. Look at verse 4, or look at, back at Philippians 3, look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had, past tense, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. One view of Jesus, and he says, whatever I thought I had, I now throw it away because of the view of Jesus, because of Christ Jesus himself, because of solus Christus. You see, again... It's not like just Jesus, or Paul saw Jesus in the heavenlies, sitting at the right hand of the Father on the Damascus Road. He saw all these truths, all these spiritual truths, all the, the salvific truth of that came crashing down in his heart as he saw a true righteous man, the God-man. He saw a true Israelite like no Israel could, Israelite could be. He saw a truly circumcised righteous man standing at the right hand of the Father, a perfect, lawful God-man, to such a degree that he had to leave it all and follow him. And this is the call of the gospel. This is the call of Jesus Christ. This is what he says in Matthew um, 11, right, when he says that those who have burdens, those who are weary and heavy laden, what does he mean by that? It doesn't mean simply that your circumstances stink, or that your kids won't stop disobeying you, or, or whatever. It, it means that those who are so heavy laden with the law, those who understand truly that they cannot gain righteousness of their own, that that's all just mutilation of the flesh, those who are under that burden, come to me. I am that righteous man who can give you rest. 
The great call of the gospel is not to, for you to be good enough to reach to God, but that you are too bad to even think that you could come an inch closer to God. Instead, God has came down to you through his righteousness applied to you. You see, Paul's confidence went from self, went from the mutilation of his flesh to solus Christus. And so your confidence needs to be, your experience needs to be, as you approach, how do I know that I'm saved? It cannot be that you find your confidence in something you have done to enter into the covenant of grace. Whether it's tied up and looking really nice religiously like a sinner's prayer or whatever may be the flavor of the month. No, it needs to be that your mind and your heart goes to Jesus Christ, who is the avenue of regeneration in your heart. In your hour, in your moment of how do I know I'm saved, your heart needs to rest on Christ and Christ alone, foundationally, as we learned about in Sunday school today. And then we see this life that he produces in those he justifies. And that says, yes, I am called out from darkness into life. We see, look at verse 8. He says, indeed, I count. Now, notice it goes from past tense to now present. I count now. He doesn't say it just at one time I counted it. And now I can count it as being my righteousness. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing, um, uh, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's a present tense thing. None of what he does at present enables, uh, establishes that foundational reality of being righteous before God. And so that means that when we are saved, whenever we are saved by Christ alone and faith alone through grace alone, grace through faith alone, it means that now the works that we do now, it's not like, and now I get to really work towards salvation, right? That foundation has been laid, and now the things I do now is for that righteous status before God. No, he's saying that even now, anything that I have, I count as lost for the sake of knowing Christ. All the works that I do has nothing to do, there's no gain in it when it comes to a right standing before God. No, instead, it's still lost before God. It's for the sake of what? Knowing Jesus. Now, how important is that for us to know right now? How easy is it for us, our motivation to come into church service or go into your study or do this disciplines of the Lord with this, this convoluted understanding that this is what I got to do in order to make God happy. This is what I have to do because this is what Christians do. It is a very easy thing. It's something that you always need to be looking at your heart. God, what is my motivation here? And if you see any motivation that is supposed to be that foundation of this is like how I'm right before God, may you throw that out and say, that's all lost. I can't do anything like that. But may your motivation be, I do what I do so that I can gain more of Jesus Christ. He says the surpassing worth of knowing Christ, my Lord. It's not like he's saying he didn't know him before. Like that foundational, when we're justified by Christ, we know him, we see him, and we know him for the first time. We say, I want him now. But then we grow in our understanding of this Savior. And so everything that we do is also that we can know this blessed Redeemer more. And why you're here now, if you are saved, is because you want to know Jesus more. And if it's any kind of, because this is what I got to do to be right before God, may you throw that out the window. Say, no, this is so I can know my Savior more. This is why I'm here. Whether it's church service, your marriage, your parenthood, your Bible studies, whatever you're doing, may it be because I want to see Jesus more in this. 
You know you can see Jesus more in your marriage. That's the whole purpose of your marriage is to see Jesus more. The whole purpose of parenting, the whole purpose of, 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 of parenting and, and family relationships and relationships with your brothers and sisters in Christ is to know Jesus more. And you know that a lot of times you can see Jesus more in hostilities, in times that are hard. As you obey Jesus and say, I want to see him in this, he will reveal himself to you. See, he says in He says in verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Worth. God has made us creatures, people who pursue worthy things. Every, every single person you know, including yourself, is pursuing something that's worthy. We're, we're made, we're engineered by God that way because we are engineered to seek him who is the worthy one. Everyone is seeking a worthy Thing. But the life that we have through Jesus is that we have been opened up. Our minds have been opened up to see that Jesus is the greatest of all worth. And so everything we do as Christians is to pursue, to see, to behold the worthiness of Jesus. This is why we do what we do. Solus Christus. And again, as we look to close up, he kind of concludes in verse 9. Well, he says in um, verse 8, For this sake I have suffered the loss, in verse 8, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. Again, he's not saying I don't have Christ now. He's saying so I can gain more of Christ. So he says that anything that I think is going to just simply make me righteous before God, I throw away. Simply, I grab hold of that so I can just gain more of the righteousness I already have in Jesus. This is what I do, why I do what I do. Or this is why Paul did what he did. And this is why we do what we do as Christians. I'm saying do way too much. And when he says in verse 9, and he kind of gets to the, the cornerstone of the issue or, or the doctrine itself. He says, and be found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith or trust and looking to and, and reliance upon Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, that's the whole cornerstone of the issue here, right? Uh, we said that false religion is very dangerous. And we look at the apostles, what they wrote, they were very concerned about false religion. They very much were so. It's because what false religion will do is it will make people think that I am right before God. I have gained the worthiness or I'm, I'm together with the Father, which is of all worth because of some other reason, whether it's mutilation of the flesh or whatever it may be. But true religion, true Christianity says that we are right before God because of our faith and confidence in Jesus and Jesus alone. And here is our life. Here is our pursuit. Not to be made right with God, but because Jesus has been so kind to make us right with God. And so now we follow him wherever he may lead us. Which, as I quickly conclude with 10:11, we see in 10, that I may know that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him even in his death. You see, again, that I, I don't think he's talking about the resurrection there. I don't think he's talking about the final resurrection. 
He says, when I may know him and the, and, and the power of his resurrection, I think he's talking about a resurrected life. I think he's talking about a righteous life. That I may know him so I can know what it's like to live a righteous, lawful life is to know Jesus, is to know that. He says, my goal, my desire is, is not to do the law, to be right before God, but to follow Jesus so I know what it's like to have a resurrected life from the dead unto life. And even if that means sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Is Jesus that kind of worthy to you? Is it so much worth it to you, Christian, that you say, I just want to see Jesus more, even if he determines that is through my suffering? That's when we know that Jesus is our all in all. And that's when we know that our hearts and minds aren't on some kind of idol. That if God has determined in your life that you're going to suffer to see Jesus more, you say, so be it. May it be as the Lord has said. And that's how we know whenever Jesus is our God. And we are not holding on to any idols. Because the thing that you think of, well, I won't dispense with that in order to know Jesus. That is an idol that must be torn down. And it might be wonderful things like children, husband, wife, brothers and sisters in Christ that you get to worship with on the Lord's Day. Well, if God has determined that you're going to know him more in suffering and the worthiness of Jesus is going to be showcased to you in that suffering, may it be you, O Christian, who says, yes, he's worthy. I will take the suffering for the sake of my Lord Jesus Christ to know him and the blessed life, his blessed resurrected life. You see, when you're right before God because of proper doctrine, right, because of the faith that you have in Jesus, when your righteousness, your standing before God is centered in Christ alone, that's how you are close to God. He becomes ultimately worthy of everything, even of the greatest of sufferings. But whenever he is not worthy in that way, you know that foundationally you have shifted away from the gospel. And that doesn't mean that now you're not saved. It just means that you need to go back and repent and say, oh, Lord, may Jesus worthy of me. May he be my all in all, my righteousness before you. And may that be all of the worth to me. But you know that when you leave grumbling, complaining, when you know that that's the spirit that you have, you need to go back to the five solas. You need to go back to the confession, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, for the glory of God alone, so that the worthiness of God is displayed in Jesus alone, so that he'll be my pursuit alone. And so ultimately, in verse 11, that by any means possible, whatever that looks like, whatever that looks like, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whatever God has determined to be in my life so that I see Jesus more, may it be. This is what I want. I absolutely love that in a culture that is a slave to circumstances through and through, the Christian has a deeper root, a greater foundation. Again, brothers and sisters, we are not a slave to circumstances, but because Jesus is our righteousness, he is our pursuit, he is our worth. We say, let it all be, let me suffer like Jesus suffered, just let me have Christ. May that be what's going on in your heart more than anything right now. May the, the worthiness of Jesus overshadow everything that you may be struggling with right now. So that it doesn't mean that those things aren't things that are suffering. It's not like he says there is no suffering. There's suffering there. But it's overshadowed by the mercies and grace of Jesus Christ and the worthiness of knowing his name. Don't take your eyes off of that great prize of the upward call. Don't look away from that. That is your life. That is needed. That is your passion. That is your future. So that you can gain that inheritance, that that resurrection from the dead. Oh God in heaven, 
We thank you for Jesus alone. We thank you for this doctrine. We thank you for this confession, Lord. Um, again, I, I, in my own mind and heart, uh, it's so easy for these to be doctrines just on a dusty page that I learn about in the history books and church history that I can joke around with with some of the Catholic friends that I have, especially on Reformation Sunday. But Lord, it needs to be more than that. It needs to be the very foundation of, of my own and, and the people before me, of, of all the people's faith, uh, of, 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 of their righteousness, that their foundation being Jesus Christ alone, that we are saved by grace through faith for the glory of God alone. May this be more than just a stuffy confession, but that, may this be the very foundational framework of our righteousness before you which then influences a life lived for you. And so I pray, God, that all of us look within our own hearts and minds right now and we ask, am I living for the Lord? Am I conforming myself to his image in every way? Where we see ourselves falling short, may we not just think law, that I just got to be better with the law, but may we see that I just need to pursue Jesus more, who has made me better who has made me perfect, who has made me the righteousness of God because of his righteousness. May we answer that I just need to see a greater picture, a greater image of Jesus. And may we see that that's not done in any other way but in the scriptures alone, in God's word alone. And I ask God that all my weaknesses that I know I have, I pray that at the very least I have lifted up Jesus to be beheld by these people in your word and that they would grab hold of it and see that Jesus is worthy of all our pursuits because of all that he's done to make us right with you and have life with you. I praise you for this gospel truth, and may we live in that reality today and this week into eternity, looking to Jesus and looking away from our sin. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.